What's your problem? Well, it, it just crashes every time my screensaver comes up. All right, let's run a test. Just type in xy dot uh, violator slash four six seven f four six. Type in move. You're listening to the Strong Towns podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the podcast. This week, I have Lou Wong with Code for America. We've been trying to pull this podcast off for about six weeks now. <laughs> so I appreciate your patience, Lou. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Chuck. I'm glad to be here. You are uh, usually work out west in California, right? Yeah. At Code for America, we're based in San Francisco. But as fellows, we're partnered up with cities all across America so depending on what group you're in, you might be in different places. So I last year was actually in a group where we were working with the city of Las Vegas. Oh, um, okay. So yeah, primarily out west. But you're in Boston today. I'm in Boston today. This is our fellowship is only a year long, so we officially wrapped it up in November. I had a couple of months just doing some cash up work for our project, but at this moment I'm contracting freelance as a front end developer for a group in Boston called the Engagement Game Labs. I want you to explain for our listeners what Code for America is. I actually met Alyssa Black, who I know is no longer with Code for America, but I found it just be this brilliant kind of inspirational person. I met her through the Orton Foundation a couple of years ago, and she turned me on to you guys, and I've just been amazed with what you've done. Why don't you explain a little bit Code for America, and then I want to talk a little bit about you and kind of your path into this organization. So what is Code for America? Yeah, Code for America is a nonprofit organization, and it's not that old. It's about four years old at this point. And primarily, its mission is to help governments use technology in more of a similar way that a lot of the tech startups in that are based in San Francisco and other places have been providing services and just sort of like borrowing some of those lessons and applying it to the way that governments interface with their citizens. A really good example is that people, we don't really work with the DMV, but a lot of people like, you know, face at us, kind of have that shared experience of going to the DMV or maybe in the post office is another good example. Right. And just having like really long lines and the service isn't great. Or if you try to do it online, some of those systems just don't work very well. And so what we're trying to say is, well, is there a better way that governments can really kind of take hold of the user experience of government? And how do we improve that? So what they're most well-known for is the fellowship program that they started. That was the first initiative that Code for America runs. And primarily, it's just people who have worked in tech, people who have worked in policy and in design, sort of getting together and learning their skills for a year to work with these municipal governments across the United States. And usually, it's because somebody within that government has felt the same pain of, you know, we're just not reaching our citizens in the way that they expect, in the way that really improves their lives. How do we do it? We don't have the skills in-house or the bureaucracy is just not enabling me to make that change happen. And so they come ask us to be kind of these consultants and these partners and we help 
tackle some of their issues together. Having been like embedded or involved with local governments now for a decade and a half, technology is one of those things that they all kind of universally struggle with. The ones that have done it well have actually had a person internally who leads the charge because the traditional like appropriation process for government tends to yield these big unwieldy contracts. The kind of thing that we're seeing now, you know, states struggle with the Obamacare platform. Code for America, it seems to me, is like a model to kind of cut through some of that. Is that kind of a fair way to put it? Yeah, it is. But, you know, the change really does have to happen from within on the municipal government side, even up to the federal level as well. We've noticed kind of the same thing. Like nothing really gets changed unless the procurement model changes. Even the fellowship model is a one-year thing. We can show it's possible. People get it. But the procurement system is still one that sort of favors those big contracts that you mentioned. The other way around it is also if you hire the right people in-house, again, like you said, there are places that are lucky enough to have those people with the right political and social capital internally to make those changes happen. But for the most part, there are organizations that are not really well-suited to kind of being able to hire the right people with the right technology skills or the right you know way to look at agile development or look at sort of how do we go to a project and revise it based on how people are using it. So if they can get over the the hurdles of hiring the right people or they get over the hurdles of contracting with the right people who can develop things in a better way, then you start getting things where hopefully our hope is like healthcare.gov, for example, rather than sort of being a long, drawn-out, expensive process where you build a system that doesn't work, you have a project. It may not work at first, but you're able to sort of continually iterate because you have the staff in place to do it until you do get the system that provides the best service for everyone. I'm just nodding my head here. You know, one of the frustrations that I've seen at the local government level and then also, of course, with this big experiment we're running now with that national healthcare platform is just that, mm-hmm. that low tolerance that we have with, I'm going to say the wrong thing. I don't mean incompetence, but perceived, you know, incompetence of government. You know, we're very tolerant of Google when they try, you know, the beta this and the beta that, and it doesn't quite work right. and they tweak it and it's rolled out for a small group and then we ramp it up. How much of local government, you know, you guys interact with is teaching them that things won't be perfect on day one? You know, if you take a step back and look at, well, you know, it doesn't matter how hard you plan a project. How well has that worked? Has that model ever produced something? Clay Sharkey, who does a lot of writing and uh, speaking on technology issues, uh, he was a, a keynote speaker at the Code for America Summit back in October. He said something that was kind of a good way of putting it, which is a lot of governments have this tendency to kind of plan things to the very last detail, and then they'll put out an RFP and get this contract, and then it'll fail. And right. so they'll say, well, our solution is to, well, next time we'll just plan harder. Plan more, right? Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so kind of the first message is there's sort of a disconnect there. I mean, does that ever work? That does get bolstered sometimes by this sort of fear of failure that they have, the fear that if, if I put out something and it fails, then, then this doesn't look good politically. And we'll just have to keep planning our way, keep adding more rules and more layers of bureaucracy to attempt to limit the amount of failure, but again, it's never worked. It's never worked that way. So it's just sort of untangling that is kind of 
what we're striving to do. Can you give us a little bit of your background? Because I, I think that that would be an interesting narrative to kind of tie some of these thoughts together. Then I want to yeah. kind of probe you and push you a little bit on your work with cities directly and some of your experiences. So what's your background, Lou? Well, my background is in architecture and urban design. Uh, when I went to uh, undergraduate school in architecture at Berkeley, I did architecture for a number of years, mostly smaller projects, retail, coffee shops, and single-family homes. I got to a point where I started realizing that a lot of what we were able to do were limited on sort of rules in zoning and building code. Like I understood some of why the rules were there, and I didn't understand why some of those other rules were there. <laughs> and so the more I started thinking about things on sort of a system-wide neighborhood, city scale, that sort of thing. It led me into urban design. So I went back to grad school for urban design and city planning. And then after grad school, I did that for a couple of years at an architecture firm. So I was still doing a little bit of both, some master site planning, affordable housing projects, design guidelines, and uh, studies of zoning code revisions, that sort of thing, streetscape right. redesigns. And I was doing that. And at the same time, sort of I kind of on a parallel track to this life professionally, I was also just sort of dabbling in, in web design as a hobby, primarily just for myself and also just for some freelance gigs on the side. I was never too good at it because I was in California or in Silicon Valley and I had a lot of friends working in tech. I saw a lot of what was going on in that area and I just started drawing these connections, much like I was drawing connections between architecture and sort of the citywide environment. I was drawing connections between city planning and sort of the actions people were taking and also just sort of what became possible in technology when social media became huge, once all these services start going online and radically transforming the way people interact with society. And because that happened, it suddenly became relevant, I think, to planning. Like it just it got to a point where technologists were impacting the built environment. I mean, people like take a look at things like Uber and Airbnb and how they have transformed a lot right. of the economy around transportation and housing. And it became a thing where I'm like, well, you know, we now have to go into that direction. So I threw in all of that experience into an application at Coach for America and I made it into the fellowship program. And now here I am. Wow. Wow. It's fascinating because my experience, I feel kind of parallels it in a little way. I mean, I, in undergrad school, I was building computers. Like one of the things that mm. impressed my future father-in-law at that point was that I built my <laughs> my future wife a computer. And it was always kind of a side hobby, you know, because I was mm-hmm. in engineering school. And when I was working as an engineer, I came up to the same problems you worked at as an architect, you know, all these planning things. And I needed to become yeah. a planner in order to be a good engineer. Then working in the planning profession kind of realized that, okay, we're over planning and mm-hmm. taking a lot of inspiration from the innovative thinking that was going on in Silicon Valley and all of the kind of high tech innovation, not so much the programs, although I've kind of always been a tech geek in that, like I love the latest app and the latest what have you. It's that thought process of we're just going to try something and then what works we're going to build on and what doesn't we're going to toss aside. There's a certain mentality that programmers have and that tech people have that is really kind of lacking, or maybe put it this way, the rest of society would really benefit from adopting, particularly government. Is it that mentality that you've kind of been drawn to? Yeah, I definitely see that connection as sort of being like, this is what's necessary. 
And the more I sort of like look at these sort of two different fields, I start realizing there's parallels, there's very strong parallels that kind of happen both in programming world and in planning world, right? In technology, a huge focus now is on user experience, right? And then we would go out and do these user experience interviews. We would try to figure out how people use these things, and then we would take all that research back and and go to the designers and go to the programmers and say, okay, well, we need to iterate on this. This is how people actually interact and this is the problems that they're facing. Right. So we don't really do that in planning very much. We don't do that in architecture very much. But but it's not that because no one's thought about it. We have different terms for that kind of thing. In architecture, people have been talking about post-occupancy evaluation, and that's the term they use for you user experience studies after a product is released, after something is built. And they've been talking about this for decades, yeah. and it's just not common practice because the clients usually don't pay for it, and so we don't do it. Right. But in academia, it's talked about a lot. So software development is the same way, and there's huge companies out there producing software, and it's done in what's called the waterfall model. And this is the, we're going to plan everything down to the details, like, fill out all the bullet points of the specification. This is what it's going to do. And then we're going to build a whole thing and it's going to be done before a single person ever walks in the door and whatever happens after that's whatever happens. That exists in software, that exists in planning, that exists in architecture. We just call it by different things. Right. You know, agile, lean startup. This is stuff that Silicon Valley just sort of eats up. This is how technology startups, that's just sort of the mentality that they, but that's a name for what that is. And in urban planning, we might call that tactical urbanism. Sure. We might call that what a project for public spaces calls lighter, quicker, cheaper, right? Right. So what is the minimum viable product to get something and then you iterate on that? So there's definite parallels that exist. There is an opportunity for people to learn from each other. It would also kind of be bad to say, okay, no one in planning has ever learned anything from technology. It's just about uh, the way I look at it is technology is such a useful Trojan horse because it's so hot right now that you can kind of go into somebody and say, hey, here are things we learned from technology. Then they listen to you, and then you can kind of show them what it means from the lean startup agile side of placemaking, for instance. Right, right. Street mix. I'm kind of embarrassed because I didn't know street mix existed. <laughs> and, and <laughs> oh. you know, and all of a sudden I stumbled across it and I just fell in love. As someone who is both engineer and planner, there were a lot of times where I would need to relate just a simple cross section. And I don't own AutoCAD. I'm not a Photoshop expert. You know, I could draw something out, but you get a little bit more cred when you walk in with the, the font that is from the computer than the font that is, you know, hand drawn scribble. So Street Mix to me was this fantastic program that was so mm-hmm. easy to use and export and share. And within a second, I could give ideas of all kinds of things to people. Why don't you explain where Street Mix came from and how this fits into what Code for America is doing? So, well, it's interesting because Street Mix, it's what we would call a side project. And partially because like the primary thing that we do in the fellowship program is, you know, we're working directly with these cities to kind of tackle these problems that they have. And StreetMix wasn't built for Las Vegas and it wasn't built for any of the Code for America cities at all. What also tends to happen, I think, when you get a bunch of people like me in this class of fellows, we're all like naturally extremely talented, creative problem solvers. We kind of have an itch to just solve whatever problems we kind of see that are existing, like regardless of whether or not 
it's something that's for our city. My favorite kind of people. I totally know the mentality. It's like you can't help yourself but fill a void. And there's, right. a, there's a huge void there. Yeah. And I love it about this group of people. I love it. That's kind of exactly what happened. How it started was in, back in January when we first started the fellowship. It was January 2013. I held a hackathon. And for people who don't know what a hackathon is, it's an event usually happens. Well, it could be any length of time. It could be a, an evening. It could be a weekend. It could be a day. And it's just an event for people to kind of get together and just sort of say, I have this idea for a project. Who would like to help me work on it? And then we'll just get together for this amount of time and we'll try it out. We'll make a prototype. The term just sort of comes from the idea of like computer hackers, which kind of has a negative connotation for a lot of different groups of people, but really just mean people who just want to like make cool things happen. Yeah, just tweak things. So that's where the term, yeah. So that's where the term hackathon comes from. And again, because of the connotation of the word hackers, it tends to attract a lot of programmer types. We're actually trying to change that a little bit. We're trying to expand what that term means and what the demographics of these sorts of events and yeah. these organizations really just say, hey, it should involve people who, and that's kind of the makeup of our fellowship, right? It's not just programmers, it's people who have worked in policy and design and people who have worked in you know, all sorts of different fields who are just interested in tackling these issues together. So anyway, we held a hackathon. Not all of us had been in a hackathon before. It was actually my first hackathon. I had just sort of recalled this community meeting I was in San Francisco just a few months prior where they went to the community and they said, we'd like to get your feedback on the redesign of the street and split up into these groups and put your street assemblage together using these paper cutouts that we provided. You know, So I thought, well, why don't we make an online version of this? Because that way, you don't have to go to a community meeting to submit your feedback. Because that's sort of one of the issues that I've observed with community meetings over the years is just what happens when you don't get to reach the entire community because certain groups can't make it or don't hear about the meeting until it's too late. Right. Are you then really kind of getting the best cross-section of the people you're trying to reach? So that was really where I was trying to get at. And we got together, uh, just again, like a group of just extremely talented people. We put out our first prototype after January. It was very basic at the time. You couldn't even resize anything. There was not nearly amount, the amount of parts that are in it. Now, it doesn't even look the same. But we got really good feedback just even from that first prototype when we worked on it for the next six to eight months or so. And now it is what it looks like. I used it extensively in a report we just put out. And this report is called Neighborhoods First. I was essentially trying to bridge the gap between tactical urbanism and the standard engineering report. The idea that I could just drop in different street sections, instantly resize them, show where bike lanes would be, where auto lanes would be, where sidewalks, is an amazingly powerful, powerful tool. Wow, thank you. I'm just very grateful that it's there. What do you see as like the trajectory for this little side project now? I mean, is there something new coming with Street Mix? I'll get to answering that question the long way around by Please. kind of going back a little bit, just to sort of pick up on what you're saying earlier about just being able to generate these graphics very quickly and you don't have Photoshop or the CAD tools or, or whatever to be able to kind of come up with. You don't need uh, anything. You just need a browser. Yeah. And well, see, the funny story for this is just that, you know, when we first started out, we thought, well, you know, we're going to target specifically whoever, Joe the plumber, you know, single mom, families, whatever, just whoever has access to a computer, we're going to make it as easy as possible for them. So we said, okay, we're not going to tackle the professional tools. We're not going to replace CAD. We're not going to, there's just so much complexity about 
streetscape design, and I know that from experience, for me to say, well, let's not get into any of that stuff. Let's not try to like get into the nitty gritty of all the specific details, which is why you still can't be very precise on your measurements, for example, why there's no plan view. We don't have a demarcation between like property line and setback line. Sure, stuff, which sure. is stuff that you might commonly see on an engineering diagram that a planner might produce. Uh, just because we thought we weren't, like we're never going to attract that audience. We're never going to build a tool that would satisfy all of those requirements. We didn't. Uh, we still get requests every day from people who are like, could you add that? Could you add that? Could you add that? <laughs> but what we didn't realize is how much it still took off anyway. Right? right. And that's sort of the most heartwarming things about, I think we didn't necessarily intend this specifically, but I think one of the greatest successes of this is that people like you, people who are activists within organizations, the community groups, biking, walking, pedestrian activists, groups all over the place are now able to express what they need to in a really, really easy way. And that's become a phenomenal, I think, sort of user base to target. Moving on from there, it's like, what's the next step? I think that's a hard question to answer because I kind of know in my head, or at least I have a proposal or a proposed trajectory in my head for where I'd like to go. The actuality of it is the challenge, right? So this is post-fellowship, post-Code for America for us. All the team members have primarily moved on to other projects. A lot of it is just due to kind of us having to sort of figure out how to pay ourselves because the fellowship itself is working off of a stipend. It's not a huge amount of money. Sure. So what I would love to be able to do is continue working on it to kind of add the stuff that we didn't add, but also to make it more expandable so that other things could be added fairly easily. And also to make it so that it can be used in a community engagement process, or it can be used to create better diagrams. So the question is, how do we, get the support and the people that we need to do it. And that's all up in the air. And I think we're going to be able to sort of innovate our way out of that, I guess, and it is sort of the way I would put it. But it's really about, can we get funding? Can we get clients that would kind of upfront pay us to do some of the features that we can then add and then make available to other people? Do we look for grant money? Do we look for like big projects to attach ourselves to? It's one of those things that the impact of it is far beyond probably you know what anybody anticipated it's one of those things that once it was there and i could start using it i'm like oh my gosh why didn't someone do this years ago it's so powerful in just a, a small little tool that had to be a gratifying experience for you guys yeah absolutely and i think it taught us a lot about just kind of the possibility of where these things could be right and even like sort of beyond what street mix is, like, you know, some of the really, really big things about what street mix isn't is very, very huge. We may never tackle it, right? Like what happens at an intersection, right? It's super important. What happens when you change something and how that, like, can you create a model that makes, that shows the impacts on a neighborhood scale? And those are much bigger questions that street mix by itself is just not really going to be able to do. But could you apply some of the same principles to piece of software that does address those questions that planners and community members are concerned about, which I think is really, really interesting. Like if nothing else, like I would be super happy if like everybody who produces planning software, like over the next year just said, you know what, we could do this in a different way. And this is what planning software just looks like now. That would be amazing. Yeah. I think it's also furthering some of the stuff that Code for America is doing each year. I mean, this year we just started a new class of fellows and they spent the last month in training and also doing a very similar thing that we did last January, which is just sort of producing these kind of side projects. One group 
created transit mix, you know, obvious sort of borrowing of our the, the mix prefix to great effect. And again, it's just a prototype, a simple prototype on their end, just like ours was a year ago. I don't know what they're, they have in mind for it, but it's kind of similar in concept is, hey, you know, could you, as someone in the community, propose your own transit lines and put that on a map with everything else that people are proposing and just sort of see like kind of this collection of like sentiment in the city or in a community-wide basis of where transit line should go. Uh, it's sort of an interesting concept, right? Right. And, and something hopefully might come out of it, I think. Now, you had a one-year fellowship, right? Yep. And you were largely attached to Las Vegas. Is that what I understand? Okay. Yeah, that's correct. What is that interaction like? Like for the city and for you, what's the intimacy there? How does it back and forth go? And and what are some of the things you were able to do in your 12 months there working with the city of Las Vegas? Oh, man. Uh, I have so many stories. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I should also say that, you know, every city is, is different. Every team and their interaction with their cities is going to be just highly contextual. So, my experience doesn't necessarily speak for any right. of the other fellowships. Well, that, that, that's kind of but, the point. But yeah. 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 So in Las Vegas, we had a, a really excellent, what we call city contact. These are people within the city, usually the person who uh, applies for the fellowship in the first place, because the cities are applying for the fellowship. is similar to the way we as individuals apply to be fellows. So uh, a selection process is, is done to determine whether the, the political and the financial support, even within a city's organization is sort of there to support our work. So before we even came in, the staff at Code for America kind of already figured that out. So in in Las Vegas, we had a really amazing uh, city contact uh, within their IT department. And he was a project manager, but he just had been there for a while and knew so many people within that organization from many different departments. And he was just incredibly supportive and was able to sort of help us get connections with the right people within the city government, which is great. I think you definitely need to have somebody on the inside who can kind of be your advocate because otherwise you're just outside consultants. Right. You go to any department you want, planning department, business licensing, parks and rec, whatever, and they'd be like, I don't know who you are and I don't know why I should care. But he did a very <laughs> good job of kind of setting that up and getting people on board with just, hey, you know, do you need, uh, how can we help, right? right so right. that was that was fantastic. And beyond that, it's really just, okay, we go in. Our mission in Las Vegas was very broad. Um, they just want us to kind of just help us address, you know, issues of economic development and citizen engagement. And these are just really kind of very broadly things that City Hall does. So we talked to everybody. We just sort of got a sense of where their pain points are. We were out in the community as well, mostly through uh, the downtown project, uh, which is doing a lot of transformative work in the downtown of Las Vegas. So, you know, we were trying to get a sense of, you know, where, what people are doing, what people are up to, where, what challenges and issues and problems are they facing. And then we would propose potential solutions that, that we could help them with, just sort of small things. So, you know, a couple of projects, well, we did a number of things, but I'll start with a, one really good story, which is super simple, right? This yeah. isn't even us producing an app. This is just us. We were talking to their cultural affairs department and they said, hey, you know, we sent out these emails to the people who are on our newsletter and our supervisor or somebody said, Hey, you know, you should put in some pictures. You should put in, you should uh, sign your name because it's more personal. Uh, and then that's going to be better. And they asked us, so what, do you know what's going to be better? I said, well, we can't tell you what's better, but we can tell you 
what people who work in the tech industry does is something called A-B testing. You send out one version of an email to a group of people. You send out another version of an email to another group of people, and then you can get some metrics back on which one has the most click-throughs, which one has the most reads, that sort of thing. And then you now have a basis of saying, now I know which way is going to be better. And rather than just sort of a he said, she said, or I'm just doing things my boss said so kind of situation, you're able to point out the metrics and say, this decision is better. And you're able to sort of iterate your way toward an email that your constituents are actually going to read and enjoy. So we basically said, hey, we're going to do this. And we showed them this email service that helped them do that. And I don't know if I can just mention Bank Oh, yeah, no. Sell them in any way. But so we just said, hey, MailChimp is a service that's there. You can do this with MailChimp. And they said, well, that's great. Could you come back next week and tell some of our other staff about it? And we said, sure. So we showed back up and then they said, hey, we have these representatives from MailChimp. We're like, no, no, we're not trying to sell a service. That's not what we're doing. We're not (laughs) representing MailChimp. They're not paying us any money. We're just trying to tell you this is a thing that they do. There's probably other services like that. And if you were trying to procure another email system, now you know this is a feature that would be great for you to have because this enables you to reach your people in a sort of an iterative metrics driven way. Right. A lot of tech <laughs> right. So <laughs> there's always that fear at government. When you assemble a bunch of people, you are trying to sell them something. I run into that all yeah. the time. <laughs> yeah. And, and so they just sort of assume that, which is kind of fun. So I, I think my conclusion to that story, which I think was a really, really great follow up, but very months later, we actually got our city contact came back to us and said, Hey, remember that thing you guys taught in the cultural affairs department? Well, you know, the water department here in Las Vegas got a hold of that. And we told them about this and they thought this was great. And so they wanted you to come and talk to them about it. And we showed up at this meeting with them and the water representatives from the water department. And then what we realized is they didn't need us at all. Like they kind of needed us sort of as, as an excuse to be there and make them feel comfortable. But at this point in time, they understood how to do email A-B testing. Yeah. They knew it. They already they figured it out. And now they're spreading that to other departments, which I think is great. And I think that's just, it just sort of says this is kind of the impact that we, with very, very small things, we can sort of internally transform how people within government behave. There is value, and I think it's often overlooked in local governments particularly. There's value in having someone kind of far outside the system with innovative ideas, with kind of a license to go in and make suggestions. I was in the city of South Bend last year, and they had this guy. I only remember his first name. His first name, they called him Santi. He's actually from South America. He's like an engineer. He's like a bunch of degrees. Basically, he was just this brilliant young guy who Mm -hmm. they kind of said, we just want you to hack our city. Just go in, give us advice on what we should do. And I've been trying to get him on the podcast too, because he basically, and it was not a big deal to him because for him, it was obvious. He had knowledge that they didn't have, but for him, it wasn't Mm -hmm. anything novel. He just came in and said, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you tweak that? But for the city, it was revolutionary. I mean, to the point where they were saving, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on things they had been doing, you know, this way for years. That's amazing. I wonder, so South Bend was actually a code for America City last year. Okay. Um, and I wonder how he was related. He might be. Uh, the team, there's another team of fellows who was in South Bend, South Bend, Indiana, right? Yeah, yeah. Santi might have been through that program. In fact, now that you're saying that, I think he might have been a fellow. And then they just kept him on because he was so incredibly valuable. 
Well, I mean, if he was a fellow, I would know him because we all we all hang out. But um, okay, so he probably wasn't a fellow, but. I would be very surprised if he didn't at least meet or interact with the fellows. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm positive. It was in that same vein. Yeah. yeah. The whole idea of, of having that person come in and do that, to me, that seems like a very low-risk, high-return kind of investment that a city can make. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. Especially once you have that person that's in the city, a huge part of it is also establishing trust, right? I mean, we are from the outside, right. but I feel like we, uh, it was very hard for us to get traction immediately. Like it had to come over the course of the year, uh, after which we were able to sort of kind of demonstrate our value and then say, okay, well, we're not here to like harm anybody. We're not really here to like, you know, get rid of people's jobs. We're really trying to make you do your job better. Right. right. And that's a, that's a, that's a subtle kind of way of, uh, of looking at it that, but it makes all the difference. So even coming from the outside, you have to establish trust on the inside. So sometimes what ends up happening, I think, is, you know, a lot of people who are working within government, especially those that are sort of distrustful of people outside of government kind of saying things, they might just shut them out entirely. So it might not work that well. So they'll just kind of listen to each other and it becomes like sort of a closed system of people just sort of saying the same things over and over again to you don't really think that there's another way through it or another uh, outlook on it. Right. But once somebody does get in into that system from outside and establishes trust and if people listen to him, then that's what absolutely makes that transformation occur. And then once that transformation occurs on the inside, that message is even easier to spread because other people who may not be distrustful of us or who may be distrustful of us or the outsider, well, they might not they might not trust us, but they'll trust these other people who have been in government for years who trust us. Right. Let me ask your opinion on a few things that are, you know, marginally related, but maybe not directly. What does it say to you if a city doesn't or does have a Twitter account or a Facebook account? You know, I don't really think about it that much on that level. I think part of it is, you know, I'm trying to remember the last cities that I actually follow on Twitter besides the city of Las Vegas, which has a Twitter account yeah, yeah. Um, that they actually do use quite a bit. For me, it doesn't really say much. It's it's really about like how well they use it if they have it. Because sure, I think sure. if you have it and you don't use it well, it actually is worse than if you didn't have one. Okay. I think it depends also on like how people expect to be interacting with, with the government, right? I, there's different ways of looking at it. So the city of Las Vegas has a singular Twitter account yeah. and a single Facebook account. I and mean, one of the big issues that they were facing is whether or not individual departments could have their own Twitter accounts and their own Facebook accounts. And there's two ways of looking at it. There's if each department or each council member had their own Twitter or their own Facebook, could they be interacting with citizens in a more personal way? And the answer would be yes. But then there were also a perspective of, well, if everyone was sort of interacting in a separate way, like, would they also be saying something that isn't representative of the city as a whole? And there's always that fear. Because, you know, especially when departments don't communicate, you have one department who could kind of go out and sort of say their own thing. And then another department will just say, uh, that's not, that, that's not, uh, <laughs> just because the parks and rec department says you can do it doesn't mean you don't file a business licensing yeah, permit for this thing that you're trying to do. Wait you know? a sec. Are, are you suggesting that within a city, the departments don't always agree on everything? <laughs> well, yes. I, you know, I, <laughs> people know that. But I also think that one of the issues is that when you go to the departments, you don't, I mean, that's one of the user experience breakdowns that people experience, right? Which is that a city doesn't communicate. You may not think that and you talk to one person in one department and you assume you've heard the, the party line of the entire city. 
Right. And then you get mad when another department notices and says, no, you have to actually jump through these other set of hoops that we need. I don't have a really good answer to that, I feel like. The existence of a Twitter account or a Facebook account by an, in and of itself isn't what makes that city good or bad at technology or, or sure. social media. Sure. It is kind of like the overall picture of the communication internally and how that gets surface to the outside. There's a part of me that when I have interacted with cities, there's some cities that are so fearful of the message that is going out. They want to make sure that that party line, whatever it is, is not contradicted. And the outward facade is very orderly and tidy and not messy at all. There's other governments that I think want to, in a sense, expose that messiness because it, it helps kind of clean it up. If your maintenance guy is out there saying one thing and the engineer is saying another and the parks department is saying another, sure, you can control that and like pretend those conversations aren't happening and then have a centralized, but those conversations are happening and it's almost better to get them there and let's identify where those problems are. Maybe it's an unfair proxy, but I've kind of looked at the Facebook, Twitter, the level of interaction that a city has all the way from very active to no account at all as being mm-hmm. somewhat of a reflection, fair or not, on the openness of the local government itself. Maybe that's I mean, unfair. I mean, maybe as a, it is a fairly good proxy for that kind of thing. But I think, you know, the way I would look at it is like a city could be extremely communicative on a Facebook account and still be dysfunctional on the inside. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, on, in ways that you just aren't going to be able to predict or understand. Sure. I, I think these are sorts of things that are highly contextual, you know, as well, because like I said, like the structure of every city is different. Some are, some are going to have very influential mayors and some don't. And that matters. Some organizations are, have uh, much more higher degrees of like distrust within their own community of that of their government than others and that's going to be an issue to, that that's going to have to be addressed kind of on a city by city basis almost right let me ask you another question this is one that is maybe gratuitous for me i, I i'm interested in it i don't know if our, our listeners or our cities will necessarily be but There's a certain risk that local governments undertake, and I think anybody who engages with a technology professional undertakes, because a lot of times tech people tend to be, I want to avoid using the word geek, even though it may like be an apt description, but there's a certain like rabbit hole people tend to go down in terms of tech solutions. And the further they go down it, they kind of get divorced from reality. The engineering firm I used to work for, you know, over a decade and a half ago, they were very much on the cutting edge of GIS. And they had mm-hmm. this great GIS guy. Mm-hmm. And he would program all this stuff and do all the, they finally had to let him go because he couldn't stay focused and he couldn't communicate any of his work product in a way that added value to anybody oh, else yeah. out there. Everyone I've met from Code for America is in a sense kind of like almost a renaissance person in, in that they have this great coding and, and they have this great kind of technology, but they're also very like worldly and understand how things work and real communicative. Yeah. It's a great group yep. of people. It's kind of hard to find those people. What do you say to cities when they're going out and interacting with, you know, taking those kind of first hesitant steps into the tech world? We want to, you know, use this stuff to make our approach better. How do you counsel them in terms of finding people that they trust, that they can work with, and not get kind of, you know, too far down the rabbit hole without 
getting the results they need. That's really hard, right? I mean, it how is, do you yeah. train Renaissance people? You know, like that's like is that something that you can teach or is that something that or not, right? I mean, it's I mean part of I think what's really interesting, I think you're spot on about your analysis about the engineers that Code for America attracts or at least accepts into the fellowship program, there's quite a few of them that are not engineers with like a computer science degree from a college somewhere. Like an right. engineering heavy I'm not saying this is true for all of them, but there's quite a few that are they're liberal arts majors from wherever and programming is a self-taught exercise, you know? Yeah. Um, well, and it's a tool to a, get you somewhere, not the end and of itself. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly the way I approached it. I mean, my own backstory is that my dad was an engineer in Silicon Valley, very much the sort of stereotypical geek in a way. <laughs> um, just incredibly <laughs> smart. And he encouraged me to uh, kind of learned computers at an early age and wanted me to do computer science. And I just didn't have any interest in it because I didn't want to learn it to work on more computers. I wanted to use it to do something that I was interested in. Yeah. But, you know, that wasn't really the mentality at the time. That, that didn't exist. That crossover didn't, wasn't really, I don't think was that common. It was, you are an engineer and you can apply those skills to whatever context because uh, someone else would just tell you how to use, it, I guess, in your engineering skills for whatever reason. I So I went off and did architecture. I think... What does help a lot is just sort of getting some sort of grounding in a liberal art, in something that is like on the ground in real life, and then sort of being a person who can say, I'm also interested in technology. I'm also interested in programming. I, I don't know how rare that is in sort of the percentage-wise of things, but I do consistently run into people who are engineers who you know really don't think that way outside of the sphere of engineering and how do I tactical hard engineering problems, but not necessarily hard social problems, or you meet people who are on planning world who are like, well, we are really good at just sort of looking at these big planning issues from a macro level or coming up with really, you know, great designs on a streetscape level or on a building level, but we don't understand anything about technology and we're never going to need to, you know? Right. And so finding the people who can actually cross over, I think it's, I also think it's getting easier. I mean, I hope that's my um, yeah, yeah. premise is that we're at a point where people are so – the technology has become such a huge part of their lives. I would be honestly very, very sad if in 10 years some basic programming course isn't part of everyone's required courses in high school or in college at some point. Right. So it doesn't matter if you're good or bad at it. I, could, I mean, I'll admit it, right? I'm bad at math. But we all have to learn it. You know some basic right. math. If everybody knew some basic programming principles, yeah. that could go a long way. Yeah. There is a mentality that goes along with it that I think is healthy and applicable to just about every profession. Mm-hmm. Before we're done, I want you to mm-hmm. give some advice to the city. And let's think not in Las Vegas size, but let's cut that by, you know, two thirds. Say, you know, your yeah. your city of 5,000 to 100,000, and you're mm-hmm. going to go ahead and dip your toe into this world. What are your baby steps? Like, what are your first things you're going to do if you want to embrace this new economy? Well, I think to a certain extent, I mean, you know, hopefully it might even be less of a barrier just because you are a much smaller city. You probably don't have the kind of level of political scrutiny you have on you that some other big cities might. And you might even have to do some of this by necessity because your budgets aren't as big. And there's a lot that you can do with technology now with free open source software that really don't involve like having 
needing a lot of budget or a lot of money to do it. So baby steps, well, I mean, I sort of still think about it in terms of if you can get past the hiring part or the procurement part, you're well on your way to getting the right kinds of people to be doing this for you. And by getting past the procurement part, what precisely do you mean there? So, you know, I don't know what this was like in, in small cities, actually, but sort of the national story from a lot of cities and a lot of federal agencies is that, you know, one of the rules that gets put in place to protect people from, you know, contracting with the wrong contractors is they must have X number of years of proven ability to deliver projects of this similar type and scale. So naturally what this does is sort of favor very large companies that have been around for decades. But what do they know about web design? Why does GE build the White House with website? Who does who hires GE to make a website, right? Right. right. <laughs> so those procurement processes yeah. are having sort of the unintended effect. So this is something that is getting picked up even on a smaller town level of, well, we need to go with the biggest name we can find. That might not actually be your most cost effective method, right? right? So if you happen to have a talented web developer already in your own town, like how much of a win would that be to support someone who is within your own city to be the person who's responsible for build, building the city website, right? right? And it's not about finding the cheapest or the lowest cost person necessarily, but finding the best, someone that you know that you can interact with on a personal level. What comes next for you, Lou, personally, on a personal level? What are your ambitions now that your fellowship is winding down? I'm looking to do just more of this, right? Um, using technology to sort of improve city planning or even improve the tools for city planning, I think. Also, just kind of nuanced, but two very different kind of impacts, right? Uh, so right now, uh, my contract is with this group in Boston called Engagement Game Lab. And what they do is produce games for civic engagement. So they were responsible for uh, Community Planet and that was used in Philadelphia a couple of years back and some other cities as well. A participatory Chinatown, which is very well received here in Boston. And I'm working on a game right now with that they're in partnership with Tufts to teach their students about how to engage communities in a much more effective way when they go out and go volunteers at communities around Boston. And ultimately, I think what they're trying to do is put together this sort of body of academic research on what gaming principles or what game design mechanics, how that impacts and improves civic engagement. And, and this is stuff I've been thinking about for a while. A lot of sort of similar amounts of thinking went into street mix. You know, let's make it fun. Let's make it easy to use. Uh, let's make it friendly. We had actually talked a lot internally about building these game design mechanics and feedback into street mix that we never ultimately never got to doing. We might add that stuff into the future. You know, I think what's great, what's interesting is that, you know, when we say, hey, let's make it fun and this will get better feedback or this will create more empowered and enlightened citizens. Like we're just sort of saying is we don't know how true that is. So right. I'm, I'm really liking what they're doing here <laughs> about kind of just sort of setting that into motion. So I'm, I'm helping them out as a front-end developer and the stuff that I'm working on uh, right now is actually a ton of fun. You know, I'll probably move on from this and we'll see. Uh, there's looking at a few different options, but I think just sort of, being a technologist in planning world or vice versa, that's kind of the sweet spot. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking your lunch hour to chat with us. Code for America is online at codeforamerica.org, uh, Street Mix. You can get at streetmix.net. And Lou, if people want to get a hold of you directly, what's the best way to do that? Well, my website is com, and it's spelled L-O-U-H-U-A-N-G.com. 
Uh, and my email address should be on there. You can contact me on Twitter at Psychofish, and that's spelled S-A-I-K-O-F-I-S-H. Excellent. I'll put those on the podcast as well. Just go to our site at strongtowns.org and link directly to that. Lou, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, pleasure. Glad to be here. Thanks, everybody. Keep listening and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah. We need all modes of transportation. We need to modernize it in order to compete. And I mean this. A lot of you have traveled, or I've traveled 800,000 miles just since being vice president. And I've traveled millions of miles around the world. I've been in almost every country in the world. If I blindfolded someone and took him at 2 o'clock in the morning into the airport in Hong Kong and said, where do you think you are? They'd say, this must be America. It's a modern airport. If I took you in blindfold and you took you to LaGuardia Airport in New York, you must think I must be in some third world country.